Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. listeners and welcome to Behind the Knife's Pediatric Surgery Journal Club Podcast. Today we will discuss the workup and management of a patient after repair of esophageal atresia with breakdown of the specific management and patient outcomes. This is Amanda Jensen from Riley Children's in Indianapolis and I'm the current pediatric surgery junior fellow. Today I have with me Dr. Brian Gray. Hey everyone, I'm Brian Gray and I'm the Pediatric Surgery Fellowship Program Director here at Riley Hospital for Children. Welcome all to our podcast. I would like to place a little plug for Indianapolis. It is May. We love racing and we're about to have the greatest spectacle in racing happen later on this month. So come visit us in Indy. And then we also have Manisha Badia, who's one of our general surgery residents at Indiana University. Hi, I'm Manisha. I'm one of the general surgery residents at Indiana and just got back from Elder at Kenya doing a global surgery fellowship through our AMPATH partnership. All right. Whether you're a medical student, resident, pediatric surgery fellow, or attending, we want you to have access to some of the most relevant articles in pediatric surgery. We are excited to discuss postoperative management of tracheosophageal fistula with y'all today, focusing on the essential question, to tube or not to tube? Well, before we get there, Amanda, let's first dive into a quick review of tracheoesophageal fistula workup. Say we have a neonate who's born at 38 weeks gestational age who presents to our high-resource pediatric center with signs of mild respiratory distress and choking with their first attempted feeds. The NICU team attempts to pass an OG tube, and they're unable to do so. How would you evaluate this patient? First thing first, I'd get a set of vitals and immediately go see the patient. I'd go through my ABCs, assessing the airway, breathing, and circulation to make sure the patient's stable. Then I'd replace the OG tube myself and get a chest x-ray to see where the OG tube is sitting. I might even push air through the tube during the x-ray. The x-ray demonstrates distal bowel gas present orogastric tube in the upper esophageal pouch, terminating in the upper thorax. What next? If the baby's breathing okay and their stats are stable, I'd attempt to avoid positive pressure ventilation. Let's hold on here a second. Why is that so important? Well, if it's tracheosophageal fistula, positive pressure, non-invasive, or invasive ventilation can force excess air through the fistula, preferentially inflating the stomach instead of the lungs. After making sure we don't do too much positive pressure ventilation, I'd then verify IV access and start IV fluids and then send routine labs. Okay, sounds good. What else do you need to do to complete your work up here? I'd make sure we have a good physical exam, including an abdominal exam, inguinal exam, and testicular exam, listening for any heart murmurs, listening for lung sounds, assessing for abnormal facies or dysmorphic features, any of the vactral anomalies, specifically assessing for anorectal abnormalities or any limb defects. After a thorough physical exam, I'd also include a sacral ultrasound to assess for a tethered cord or sacral anomalies, an echo for cardiac defects, and to verify arch side, and a renal bladder ultrasound for any GU anomalies. All right, Amanda. Let's say this neonate has an isolated tracheoesophageal defect, no other anomalies, Echo demonstrates a normal heart with a left-sided arch. What's next? 
So this presentation is most consistent with type C tracheoesophageal fistula. I would prepare this neonate for a tracheoesophageal fistula repair. After repair and high resource settings, we have seen significant improvement in mortality rates with many centers having mortality rates less than 10%. But as the mortality rates decrease, the incidence and cause of morbidity becomes more important. Over 60% of these patients have some sort of postoperative complication, and up to 40% of them are related to anastomotic leak or stricture formation. And the onset of stricture is predictive of feeding difficulties, delay in achieving full oral nutrition, and requires additional invasive procedures. Improving stricture rates is a target to improve the quality of life for the patients with esophageal treasure. All right. Uh, there are a few hypotheses causes to development of esophageal stricture after TEF repair. One possible cause of stricture is related to the use of transanastomotic tubes. These tubes may cause mechanical shear at the side of the anastomosis or may even stent open the lower esophageal sphincter, leading to higher acid exposure of the anastomosis. For decades, pediatric surgeons have placed a transanastomotic nasogastric tube to stent open the repair and provide internal nutritional access. Perhaps we should dive into our literature review. In 2018, Wang et al. completed a meta-analysis to evaluate the safety of transanastomotic feeding tubes in patients with esophageal atresia. After reviewing 51 potential records and scrutinizing 21, they found four controlled studies to include in the meta-analysis. In total, the analysis included 335 patients who had a transanastomotic feeding tube, while 120 did not. Okay. So what were the, some of the results of this meta-analysis? So the authors had two primary outcomes, anastomotic leak and stricture formation. In review of the included patients, they found there was no significant difference in rates of anastomotic leakage between the two groups, but did find that stricture formation was almost two times more likely in patients who had transanastomotic feeding tubes. They reviewed a series of secondary outcomes, including rates of septic tracheomalacia, gastroesophageal reflux, wound infection, and pneumonia, but they found there was no significant association between the use of a transanastomotic feeding tube and these complications. Looking at this study, Dr. Gray, did you find that they presented enough data for you to consider changing your practice? Well, I don't know. I think this is a great start to the discussion of the use of the transanastomotic feeding tube after esophageal atresia repair particularly in the high-resource setting where we rely primarily on TPN for nutrition. The authors hypothesize that these increasing rates of stricture could be related to mechanical shearing at the anastomosis or stenting open of the LES, leading to increasing reflux exposure of the anastomosis. However, the meta-analysis only included four retrospective studies, and two of them had small sample sizes. So I'm not quite convinced. In 2020, the Midwest Pediatric Surgery Consortium shared clinical outcomes following implementation of a management bundle of esophageal atresia with distal TEF. In a previous retrospective review, the team found that variation in surgical techniques and postoperative practices at the 11 children's hospitals were significantly correlated with postoperative outcomes. To address these disparities, the consortium created a perioperative bundle to standardize management. There were four parts of this bundle, eliminating interposition of prosthetic material between the tracheal and esophageal suture lines, discontinuing the use of transanastomotic tubes at the conclusion of the repair, 
obtaining an esophagram by post-op day five, and discontinuing any post-operative antibiotics within 24 hours of the operation. The consortium highlighted the two key components were the lack of use of prosthetic material and preventing any trans and asthmatic tubes. Okay, so let's see if their outcomes will convince us what to do. Their primary outcome was compliance with the protocol bundle since the project stemmed from a quality improvement initiative. They found a two and a half increase in compliance from pre-protocol to post-protocol, but found that maintenance of these rates required consistent communication from the research team. The secondary outcomes were patient outcomes, including leak and stricture rates. Overall, the results demonstrated no significant difference in an astomotic leak or an astomotic stricture between the pre and post protocol cohort. They found almost a 25% rate of anastomotic leak and a 30% rate of anastomotic stricture. However, when they reviewed the rates of the anastomotic leak and stricture formation over time in six-month increments, they found there was an inverse correlation between compliance rates with this bundle protocol and stricture formation. And regression analysis, looking at the formation of esophageal strictures when including institutional compliance with no tube, emergent procedures, intraoperative vasopressor requirements, and esophageal gap length, there were no differences in adjusted risk of postoperative anastomotic strictures. This was a great quality improvement initiative. It was rolled out at 11 institutions, and you know it highlighted two key points. Surgical dogma is hard to change, and we still need more evidence to understand the effect of the transanastomotic tube on stricture formation after esophageal atresia repair. Let's review the Quebec experience with transanastomotic feeding tubes on anastomotic strictures in patients with esophageal atresia. Okay, this was an interesting study by Larissa et al. published in 2022. It was a retrospective review of all patients in the Quebec province with type C and D, esophageal atresia or tracheoesophageal fistula. All of these patients underwent primary repair between 1993 and 2018. So the team did a longitudinal review of the 244 patients. The median gestational age was 38 weeks and the mean birth weight was 2.7 kilos. Nearly three quarters of the infants did not have any other associated bacterial anomalies, but 6% did have long gap atresia. Intraoperatively, they found that neither thoracoscopic nor operative reports stating the anastomosis appeared to be under tension were correlated with stricture formation at one year. With post-op care, however, they found that stricture rates were 36% in patients who had a transanastomotic tube, while only 19% in those without the transanastomotic tubes. In multivariate analysis, the patients were 2.72 times more likely to develop a stricture when controlled for many factors, including anastomotic tension, daily acid suppression, and long gap atresia. They found that these transanastomotic tubes were associated with earlier initiation of enteral nutrition, but did not affect the median length of TPN use. They also found that regardless of association with transanastomotic tube, the patient who had a stricture required two to three dilations. 
The article cited another research study completed in Pittsburgh that also implicated the use of transanastomotic tubes as an independent risk factor for the use of esophageal stricture after TEF repair. So lots of different research, but a little bit muddy. So Dr. Gray, we just finished repairing this TEF in our 38-weeker. What should our postoperative management be regarding the transanastomotic tube? We need your expert opinion. Well, I'll try to give you one opinion here of just one expert. As we've seen here, there is some controversy in relation to the use of transanastomotic feeding tubes in this patient population. On one hand, you could leave a tube in place and start feeding the patient non postoperative day one or two through a nasogastric tube. However, as we've seen, that might cause an increasing stricture rate. On the other hand, we could leave a tube out and give the patient some PPN or even TPN for four or five days before you get your anastomotic study and then start feeding after that leak study at day five to seven. So in the end, I don't know the answer. And I think we won't really know the answer until we have a prospective study where we can randomize patients to transanastomotic tube versus none. I think those are fair points in high resource settings when TPN is readily available, like in Indiana. But thinking about the experience at Chu for Africa in Kenya, the pediatric surgery team routinely uses transanastomotic tubes and starts enteral nutrition on postoperative day one as long as the neonate's hemodynamically stable. Our neonates over in Kenya often present small for gestational age, and the hospital has limited and unreliable access to TPN. And in our setting in Eldoret, we're still attempting to reduce our mortality rate, which is currently around 25%, often related to delays in care or associated anomalies. So until something definitive comes along and our mortality rates improve, I think transanastomotic tubes are probably the way to go in resource-constrained settings. Those are some really great points, Manisha. I think so often when we are here in developed countries, we don't often think about what's happening in more resource-constrained settings. Amanda, why don't you recap what we've discussed today? All right. So to summarize, in the meta-analysis by Wang et al. and the prospective quality improvement study by the Midwest Pediatric Surgery Consortium, the transanastomotic tube does not seem to affect rates of anastomotic leaks. However, meta-analysis and the Quebec experience by LaRusso et al. do demonstrate between a two- and three-fold increase in rates of anastomotic stricture in patients who had a transanastomotic tube placed at the end of the operation. Secondly, in high resource settings where TPN is readily available, the data points towards decreasing the use of transanastomotic tubes after TEF repair. And with that, we're looking forward to next time behind the knife listeners. And in the meantime, remember to dominate the day. All right, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Gray for a pediatric surgery joke of the day. <laughs> Thanks, Amanda. Well, I don't know if this is really a joke. But this is one of my favorite operating room discussions when I have learners in the room when we're operating in the thorax. It goes like this. In the thorax, we have five birds. One is the esophagus. I'll give you three more, and I'm going to make you choose the fifth. We have the azigoose, the hemiazigoose, and the vague goose. What is the non-goose bird of the thorax? Oh, I don't know. Are there any more birds in the chest? <laughs> How about the thoracic duck? Quack, quack, quack. <laughs> and with that, <laughs> remember to dominate the day. 
Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.